It is May 25th, 2016. I return home from a midnight release at my local comic book shop with DC Rebirth number one in hand. I am shocked by the ending of the book, announcing that the DC universe has been manipulated in secret by Dr. Manhattan. It's November 22nd, 2017. The first issue of Doomsday Clock hits store shelves, setting Dr. Manhattan on a collision course with Superman. The series promises to be the culmination of the Rebirth era and is to wrap up in December 2018. It is March 10th, 2018. The first episode of the Geeksplained podcast debuts, covering the top five comics everyone should be reading in 2018. Doomsday Clock is on the list. I have no idea if this podcast will even reach 10 episodes. It's March 13th, 2019. Following the one-year anniversary of the podcast, I release another Top 5 Comics You Should Be Reading episode for 2019. Doomsday Clock is once again on the list. It's December 18th, 2019. After over two years of delays, the final issue of Doomsday Clock finally releases, concluding the Rebirth era and reintroducing the JSA and Legion of Superheroes. The story has received critical acclaim, though the heavy delays and continuity issues have done the story no favors, and it remains one of DC's most polarizing stories. It is now, March 10th, 2020. On the two-year anniversary of the podcast, we finally cover Doomsday Clock in our latest Geeksplained Spotlight. Welcome back to Geeksplained, the podcast for comics, film, TV, and more. You name it, we explain it. I'm your host, Eric Azana, and today's episode is our two-year anniversary. We have officially been putting out weekly episodes for two years. Uh, this is also episode 99. <laughs> so this is, uh, March is a big month for us over here at the Geeksplained podcast. Really excited about it. And uh, what better way to celebrate two years than to talk about one of my favorite comics in the past decade, I think, that being Doomsday Clock. Really excited to talk about it today in our latest Geeksplained Spotlight. That is, of course, our series where every month we cover a graphic novel, single issue, or comic book series and just talk about it. Talk about the things I like, the things I didn't like, and really kind of dive deep into everything that happens in that story. We've also got the return of the Wildcard Weekly Reviews in the lead-up to Harley Quinn Season 2 dropping in April. Uh, this week, I'm, I'm pretty excited about what we're going to be reviewing, so look forward to that. And of course, this week's Comics Countdown. But before we get into all of that, let's check in with this week's news. 
guys and dolls so we got some news for you this week full disclosure uh this episode is going to be going up a day early since it is our two-year anniversary so there might be a little bit less news than we normally do for the week uh because things tend to for some reason happen on tuesdays uh or wednesdays so You'll have to wait until next week's episode to get anything that drops uh, over the next couple days, but we still do have some stuff to talk about, so I'm really excited about it, and let's talk about it. First off, uh, we have our four categories, film, TV, uh, comics, and miscellaneous. I'm going to start off with miscellaneous, because it's kind of important. Um, normally, we don't cover like uh, anything outside of pop culture, comics, that kind of thing. But uh, f just wanted to throw this out there. Uh, miscellaneous news, the one and only piece of news that we have is uh, coronavirus. Coronavirus has been kind of crazy uh, the last couple of weeks. Um, lots of just global panic going on right now. As I'm recording this, uh, Italy is just in a state of chaos. Um We've also, here in California, uh, have been seeing a lot of, like, doomsday prepper-style, like, cleanouts of all of our uh, markets. I, myself, you know, just came back from the market before I started recording this, and man oh man, long lines, store shelves being cleared out of, like, non-perishables, uh, toilet paper, water bottles, stuff like that. It has been really, really crazy, and I'm not sure exactly what uh, to feel about this, but... Um, coronavirus is a thing that is going on right now so stay safe stay healthy practice good hygiene wash your hands for 20 seconds uh when you do wash your hands and wash your hands often uh working in the service industry like i do right now we basically have to wash our hands i think pretty much every 15 to 20 minutes regardless of whether we've touched anything or not so i think that's a fairly good uh parameter to go with so be safe, like I said, and uh, hopefully this coronavirus thing will get resolved uh, before it starts to really heat up for like summertime, which is rife with uh, sickness stuff. So moving on, <laughs> we're going to go into TV news and a couple big things. Uh, we got the first trailer for Westworld Season 3. Um, it looks great. Uh, we've got Aaron Paul coming in to really, um, I guess, liven up the rotating cast, which is fun. A lot of it looks like it's going to be taking place out in the real world, which we haven't seen a whole lot of in the past two seasons. I myself am kind of a season one purist. I liked season one a lot more than season two, and I liked the idea of exploring the different parks. But if they've got, you know, a story to tell and it's not too much like Detroit Become Human, then I'm all for it. Uh, we've also got a big announcement. HBO has announced that Neil Druckmann will be helming a Last of Us series for HBO, whether that's going to be a miniseries or 
you know, a couple different seasons. Uh, it's pretty exciting. The Last of Us is a huge cultural phenomenon. It was one of the breakout video games of the last decade. So it's pretty exciting. I myself have not played it yet. However, I am gearing up for the release of The Last of Us Part 2, and I will... I'm going to start playing it this month, so I'm pretty excited about it, looking forward to that. And um, just from what I've seen, because I would like to keep myself spoiler-free from a lot of stuff, um, the series could have a lot that it could draw from building out that world, because as even someone who hasn't played those games knows... Uh, the series is very much through the eyes of Ellie and Joel. So it would be interesting to follow other characters, whether they do interact with Ellie and Joel or not, whether Ellie and Joel are the uh, main POV characters or not. I think it's a really interesting world and a good uh, spin on the zombie uh, genre, I guess we can say now, that feels somewhat overplayed nowadays. But... Anyway, it's really, really exciting. I'm looking forward to that. Another thing I'm really looking forward to, uh, Three Jokers in our comics news, our one and only comics news this week. Oh, man. So th the past week, Jason Fabok on his Twitter and on his Instagram has been releasing images. Uh, first of the original appearance of the Joker, because as we know... Uh, Three Jokers is the story that Jason Fabok has been working on with Jeff Johns to solve the uh, mystery of what are the three Jokers. At the end of Johns's uh, Justice League run, they revealed that there were three different Jokers. And regardless of whether this is, you know, in canon or not at this point, I'm still super hyped for this story. Um, and so is our neighbor's dog, as you can hear. But I was really intrigued when uh, Faybox started releasing these um, images. First of the very first appearance of the Joker, then we also got a uh, photo all in, like, um, what's it called? Just, uh, they're basically like thumbnails of their face, little profile photos. Uh, first of the original appearance Joker, then of the death in the, f death in the family Joker, uh, complete with crowbar. And finally of the killing joke Joker. And as we've seen from the teases of the three Jokers over the last like two years, those are the three iterations of the Joker that we will be focusing on. And all of this, basically preceded uh, Fabok and Johns announcing that the very first issue of Three Jokers will finally be dropping on June 17th, 2020. So that is three months from now. Really excited about it. It sucks that it's so far away. However, um, it's done. Fabok and Johns have... Uh, stated that the series is done it will be a monthly release june july and august really freaking stoked about that uh and that it's basically like the reason that it took so long is because they didn't want a doomsday clock situation where the series got delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed and they just wanted to be able to send it out as soon as it was done so they've taken two years they've mastered it perfected it and now that it is all finished we're going to be getting all three issues this year I'm super stoked. Looks really, really good. They showed off a couple of uh, interior pages just kind of as a preview. It looks gorgeous. Uh, Fabok has said that he's taken a lot of inspiration in both his layout and his actual um, 
more uh, intricate artwork from Brian Bolland's work on The Killing Joke, which is exciting. Uh, so I'm looking forward to this. As you will hear in our main course of the episode, I am a huge Jeff Johns mark. And I am really freaking excited to see how he follows up Doomsday Clock with three Jokers. So really looking forward to that. Finally, in film news, we've got um, two awesome things and one less than awesome uh, piece of news. I'm going to start off with a less than awesome piece of news. And that is the newest James Bond film, No Time to Die, which was supposed to release this month, has been pushed back to September amid the coronavirus. There it is again affecting everything that we know and love in our lives. Um, it was just a safety precaution, precaution, totally get it, and I will be uh, waiting with bated breath because September is now a big, 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 big month for a lot of reasons. On uh, more exciting news, uh, Taika Waititi has confirmed that the Guardians of the Galaxy will be appearing in Thor Love and Thunder. Um, great. I'm all for it. Nothing else to really say. <laughs> and then finally, the big film news of the week was we got our first look at Matt Reeves and Robert Pattinson's Batmobile. I love this Batmobile. It has been very divisive, as has everything leaked about, or I guess released, about uh, Matt Reeves the Batman recently. But I am so stoked. They obviously basically took this muscle car and retrofitted it, kind of making it, you know, give homages to the Adam West Batmobile, to more of the classic Batmobiles during the uh, Golden Age. Really excited about this. I'm glad it's not a tank. I'm glad that it's just a souped up car because that's what the Batmobile should be at the end of the day. So really excited about it. Also standing with the Batmobile in these uh, set photos that Matt Reeves leaked um, is Robert Pattinson in full Batman regalia. And he's got the cape. The cowl even looks a little better. And I think that definitely speaks to the fact that the cow that we saw before was a stunt cowl and wouldn't represent the final product. Really looking forward to this. I'm really excited about it. And if you are really looking forward to Matt Reeves the Batman and you haven't yet checked out last week's episode. Uh, it was an awesome giant-sized discussion with Matt Draper, uh, comic book YouTuber extraordinaire, where we talked for three hours, uh, basically chronicling the history of Batman in film, as well as ranking our Batman, our personal Batman films, as well as all the bat suits with all the craze surrounding the Robert Pattinson bat suit. So definitely check that out. But for now let's head on into the main course of this episode the entree if you will which is the latest geek explained spotlight doomsday clock
So I'm going to be straight up with you right from the get-go. I have been waiting to talk about this story for a very long time. Uh, Over the course of this podcast for a good two years throughout this whole uh, odyssey that I've been on, I have been slowly chronicling the uh, progress of Doomsday Clock as it was released. It was originally supposed to drop... um, all 12 issues over the course between November 2017 and December of 2018. However, uh, heavy delays forced the book to not get its conclusion until December 2019, an entire year later, which makes basically this podcast as old as Doomsday Clock, which is a crazy thing to think about. And I think... um, thinking about what I wanted to do for our two-year anniversary, I really wanted to do something that I enjoy and something that I have a passion for. And something that you all know I have a passion for is DC Comics, and specifically tying into the history of this podcast as well as this comic, it's it's funny. It's funny how that works. Um, you heard in the probably overthought <laughs> intro that I did for this episode. I wanted to do something cool. I wanted to do something that um, I haven't really done a whole lot on the podcast. You know that I used to do uh, little special intros for stuff like Mr. Miracle and um, Heroes in Crisis, which I guess are technically retroactively Geek Explain Spotlight episodes. Um, but I wanted to do something cool for this. And uh, you heard in the intro that... Uh, December 22nd, uh, 2017 was the first issue of Doomsday Clock, and it was part of our very first episode. I was talking about the top five comics you should read in 2018, and Doomsday Clock was on there. And I, at this point, we didn't know that the uh, comic was getting delayed. We knew that it was taking breaks in June and September, I believe. Um, But we, you know, for all intents and purposes, we thought that it was going to release when it was supposed to release. And then... The next year, for our one-year anniversary, um, we did Kingdom Hearts 3, and then the first episode of Volume 2 was another top five episode, or top five comics to uh, talk about what comics you should be reading for 2019. And once again, Doomsday Clock was on the list. And I just... Every single time I heard that it was delayed further, my heart sank. Um, It topped pretty much every single comics countdown that it appeared on. And I could not wait to talk about this book. Originally, I'll peek behind the curtain here. I was going to talk about this for our final episode of 2019. But I wanted... thinking about it i really wanted to push it back and make it something special not just a hey you know it's done so we can finally talk about it so um i have waited i have gathered my thoughts and my notes that are sitting right next to me and i am ready to talk about the story so a couple things uh right from the get-go uh spoilers there's gonna be lots of spoilers here um i'm just I have to dive into it. I have to talk about it because I love this comic. And that's point number two. I unabashedly love this comic. I know that 
A lot of people um, have problems with this comic. I know that a lot of people uh, think this comic is garbage, and that's fine. You are absolutely allowed to have your opinion, and if you would like to have a civil discussion where you disagree with me on the points that I talk about here, feel free to do so on either of our social medias, at Pod. that's at GeeksplainedPod on Twitter and Instagram, or through email because I'm an old man and I still read emails, to geeksplained at gmail.com. I would love to have that conversation with you. Um, But full disclosure, I love this comic. I love everything about it. So um, all that out of the way, let's get some background on this going into it. So initially, uh, I was going to talk about just the rebirth era when it comes to doomsday clock but we're going to go even further back we're going to go back to a little event in 2010 called flashpoint now flashpoint was written by jeff johns and with art by andy kubrick and kubrick kubert um and this book was initially supposed to be a one-time flash in the pan pardon the pun uh story in the flash um Jeff Johns had just brought Barry Allen back in the Flash Rebirth comic, and he wanted to do a cool story where Barry Allen goes into an alternate timeline, um, sees how much things suck, learns from it, comes back, and continues on his way. But halfway through the development of this, uh, DC Comics decided that they were going to use this as their... um, basically as their jumping off point to leave the current continuity behind and start brand new. So Flashpoint turned, basically evolved from a solo Flash story into this universe-shattering crossover that did away with everything that we had basically fallen in love with throughout the last you know 50 years of publication and birthed the new 52 now the new 52 was also helmed by jeff johns uh starting off with the justice league book that kind of showed everyone hey this is the new world everyone's got more lines on their clothes no one is cool anymore uh everybody is five years younger and they're angry and edgy and we've got some work to do and the new 52 was i will say um to put it lightly uh it was controversial it was polarizing and as time went on the new 52 had a lot of problems doing any kind of huge reboot like a hard set reboot um will do that when you've got decades of continuity and characters that people have fallen in love with. And this story of the New 52, how everything was reset, um, really rubbed a lot of fans the wrong way. And so in 2016, everyone kind of got wind of this initiative coming. Also by Jeff Johns. Jeff Johns was able to, I think at this point he was still... um, kind of the uh, head of DC Comics at the time. And he said, we recognize that the New 52 had a lot of flaws and that it wasn't perfect. And so we are going to rebirth the DC Universe in the same way that Jeff Johns had rebirthed Green Lantern and and, uh, The Flash beforehand, really um, boiling down the archetypes and the subject matter into its essential bits that everyone loves and revitalizing it in a way that brings on new readers as well as bringing back readers who may have fallen off and so dc rebirth was this initiative that they 
were going to start bringing continuity back. They were going to explain what happened with uh, the New 52, why it happened, all in continuity. And they were going to start to fix a lot of the problems and a lot of the issues that people had with the New 52. That being the complete removal of a lot of the history and story that we all loved going into it. As well as bringing back characters that we hadn't seen since the new 52 happened and really this was a labor of love by jeff johns bringing in this story and really dropping dc rebirth number one with no uh leaks there was everything was so closely held to the chest and i remember sitting in my room past midnight uh did a midnight release back at my comic book shop in tucson shout out to heroes and villains uh, and I remember just being blown away by the reveal, first off, that Wally West had been trapped in the Speed Force this whole time, and B, that he had supposedly been trapped there by Dr. Manhattan. Uh, the reveal of the uh, comedian badge, the comedian pin in the Batcave is still one of my, probably one of my top 10 comic book moments personally of all time. Just the emotion that I had from that was just, it was supercharged. It was incredible. And this story really kicked off the DC Rebirth era, showing that, yeah, uh, Dr. Manhattan messed with the timeline. He took away 10 years of everyone's lives which resulted in the new 52 if you want my full thoughts on dr manhattan's you know actual influence on the new 52 as a whole uh check out our wally west episode it was two weeks ago where i go into my theory of exactly what happened and whether or not the new 52 that we know is the new 52 that uh was intended but to kind of boil that down and give the specifics, um, my belief is that Dr. Man is that Flashpoint really did nothing. The New 52 was really everything that we already knew about the characters post Flashpoint. It just merged all the timelines or the various, you know, Vertigo and stuff like that. Um, but that everything was the same. And then Dr. Manhattan took the 10 years away, and that's what resulted in the uh, New 52 that we know so throughout this uh early days of of dc rebirth everyone was like whoa you know what's gonna happen dr manhattan is here how's he gonna affect the dc universe now is this gonna affect the heroes of the dc universe and as we started to go along we started to get hints uh first off in the button the button storyline with flash and uh batman they appeared or uh Dr. Manhattan appeared for the very first time. It was just his hand, but it was absolutely definitely him. Uh, also bringing back Jay Garrick, my boy, uh, for a little bit. And then we got the uh, Superman Reborn storyline and the Superman Rebirth line where we found out that uh, Mr. Roz, in response to uh, Dr. Manhattan's tinkering, had imprisoned Doomsday, uh, Tim Drake, and Mr. Mix's Pitalik. And that that had far-reaching implications. And so all of this was kind of leading into um, 
this idea of like we are going to get something something is going to happen and at the end of superman reborn where they basically merge the new 52 and uh pre-new 52 superman to make one one timeline still super confusing um they had a tease where they basically showed off the announcement of doomsday clock and doomsday clock was going to be the inevitable confrontation between superman and dr manhattan the unstoppable force meeting the immovable object this was everything that we as kids had always asked ourselves um i don't know how early you came to Watchmen, but i came to it a lot earlier than i probably should have as a child and we always had that question like what would happen if superman went up against dr manhattan well this story dc rebirth was supposed to tell that tale and they made this promise that hey this is what's going to happen forget everything you know you're going to get the answers for rebirth you are going to get the answers for the new 52 everything is going to be answered in this 12 issue maxi series and um all hell's gonna break loose so that brings us to the story itself, um, which really is basically just this concept of worlds collide. You know, the Watchmen universe meeting the DC universe. Um, it's not exactly that. It's not like, hey, all these characters that were in Watchmen are now, you know, going to come fight the Justice League. Because this story really serves as a sequel to the original Watchmen book, much in the same way that the Watchmen miniseries did for HBO. Um, this story, you know, starts off, it takes place seven years after the original uh, events of the Watchmen story, where the world has found out that Adrian Veidt lied, that this huge, you know, quote-unquote alien that got dropped in new york was really just a science experiment and through the journal of uh the original rorschach and i say original because there's two um the world has found out about the great lie and adrian is faced with a world that is once again on the uh, precipice of nuclear war and so adrian in all of his immeasurable wisdom um, comes up with a plan. He is going to find Dr. Manhattan, who at the end of the original Watchmen story uh, left this universe for another one, and he is going to have him save the world. And so to do that, he recruits three individuals, first being Reggie Long, who is the son of the therapist who treated Rorschach during the events of Watchmen when he was in prison. Rorschach essentially drove him insane, um, and Reggie has taken up the mantle of Rorschach under false pretenses. And then the two characters that I definitely want to talk about, uh, Mime and Marionette. And um, I'm going to be jumping around a lot in the story here, but I just, I want to talk about Mime and Marionette because these two characters might be one of, arguably, the best thing to come out of Doomsday Clock. These characters were created by Jeff Johns and Gary Frank for this story. However, they feel like they would absolutely fit right in with Watchmen the original story. They fit right into that world. We come to find out that uh, they were essentially just, you know, costumed cr criminals who uh, ran across 
Dr. Manhattan during a bank robbery and completely going against what Dr. Manhattan normally does in the original Watchmen story, um, he spared their lives and they were arrested. And so Adrian has been obsessed with this idea of, uh, of Manhattan sparing Marionette and believes that bringing them along will remind John of his humanity and to and will bring him back to their world so that he can save it. And I love these two characters. It was it's very easy to just be like, oh, they're the Joker and Harley Quinn of, you know, the Watchmen universe. And that's fine if you want to, you know, if you want to describe it that way. It is absolutely more complicated than that, though. Um I I love these two characters. They were, like I said, made specifically for this story, and both of their uh, skill sets are so cool. Marionette has this razor-thin wire that she uses as her weapon. She is charismatic, she is silly, she is fun, she is um, a clear Harley Quinn archetype, but in that way is also her, she's able to stand alone. And if you set them up next to each other, they don't, the similarities become uh, more obscure. And then there's Mime, who I think is just one of the coolest characters and absolutely, uh, along with Marionette, needs to make an appearance in the mainline DC continuity along somewhere along the line here. Uh, Mime, completely mute. And he, you know, has the Mime face paint, the getup. But he has all of these... I guess they're invisible weapons. Um, there's a moment where he's got his hand up in the shape of like holding a gun, and the guy, this guy who they're who's threatening them, is like, "Yeah, this guy's you know pointing at me." And Mime, you know, pulls his index finger back and shoots. And then there's this panel where it's like the light catches and it glistens, and he's holding a gun, but it's for some somehow it's invisible, and he's got like a whole arsenal. There's this funny thing when they're kind of getting suited up at the beginning of the story, where they're all getting their costumes on, and you see him like making the motions of like putting on a belt and like uh, linking up, you know, a backpack or like some armory. So at any one time, Mime is carrying this invisible just arsenal alongside him and no one can see it except for him and i love that uh the two of them are also really interesting in how they interact with the world they are just tickled to death by gotham when uh adrian is able to warp them with the owl ship into the dc universe following um dr manhattan's trail and they pretty quickly run afoul of the joker and his gang um it ends up they become uh temporary allies and then they go on a whole spree uh in gotham while the world is just burning around them they're so fun they're so charismatic they're so interesting uh their origin story which i'm going to talk about later um is one of the most interesting aspects of this story and i really really dig it and these characters are absolutely um one of the best parts and i love that at the end of the story uh they are not brought back to the watchman universe they are told to that they are staying by dr manhattan in the dc universe to give birth and to raise their second child um and their first child is very important as we'll you know talk about as we go along but these two characters really are 
central to this story and i think that they are one of the best contributions that jeff johns makes in this story but going into the story itself uh there's some concepts that i really really dig first of all uh the superman theory or the supermen theory pardon me the supermen theory uh posits that there has to be a reason that for some reason um 97% of superhumans or metahumans in the planet are American. And when the comic initially posits this theory to you, it sounds ridiculous because you know about, you know, characters that are overseas, you know about characters from all different backgrounds. But when you start to think about it, you start to go through kind of the history of DC Comics, it it carries weight. It makes sense. It checks out. Like, 97% of the world's metahumans are American, and there must be a reason why. Uh, and as we come to find out, it's because of the Department of Metahuman Affairs, which is something we have never heard of before. Um, I have no... Uh, I have no doubts in my mind that it's probably an offshoot of Argus or Cadmus or anything like that. If not an offshoot, then they're definitely affiliated in some way. But this uh, department, as it's revealed over the course of the story, uh, was afraid of Superman after his debut. And so to combat him, they basically set up this secret government program where they would engineer their own superhumans to... I guess, stock themselves up for the next metahuman arm race, or I guess the first metahuman arm race. And as the story goes along, you start to see people who are implicated in this who you had no idea because they had, I guess, government-approved backstories. Characters like Man-Bat, characters like Killer Frost, characters like Firestorm. Firestorm is a tragic character as we come to find out that Dr. Martin Stein, who we all know and trust, especially the version on Legends of Tomorrow, um, Martin Stein helped to establish the Department of Metahuman Affairs. And he was intentionally responsible for the accident that bonded him and Ronnie together and created Firestorm. And so finding all this out, the secret history of metahumans in the united states both heroes and villains it's really interesting how um they created villains to combat the heroes basically to both um go undercover in the actual criminal under underworld and get information or just to as a short show of force like look how many many humans we have and it's really fascinating how that affects the rest of the world uh during certain points of the story they'll give like little indexes of superhero teams throughout the world and regardless of how many they list for each team in you know israel and japan and the uk and egypt and all these places um in the back of your mind you read it going okay but that's like six people against like four different rosters worth of justice league members and it's just it's incredible and i think that um the fact that this story was originally supposed to be set a year in the future of dc rebirth and that we were eventually going to get there before all the delays happened and dc kind of shifted their focus from rebirth into whatever the hell they're doing now um it would have been fascinating to see how this superman theory was birthed how this um theory started to kind of catch you know catch traction and really start to 
rile people up because as we see it influences and really kind of whips everybody into a frenzy uh by the time that the story starts gotham is rioting more so than usual it's normally like at a two on the riot scale maybe a four just to be safe because it's gotham you know they gotta have their riots but by the time that this story starts they're at a 10 they might even be at an 11 and you know distrust in the superman theory distrust of batman is at an all-time high uh they knock the bat signal off of gcpd they're calling for the batman's head um the world is falling to chaos just as much as watchman's earth was and it's sad it's really freaking sad but it's also fascinating to see just how fragile the uh, status quo is for the dc universe especially when it comes to their metahuman affairs uh the story really has a lot of concepts like the superman theory um the department of metahuman affairs all of that stuff that i that you can really sink your teeth into but the main driving force of the story um in more ways than one is finding john osterman um the goal of team ozymandias i guess is really about finding uh finding john finding him convincing him to come back and save the world but as we come to find out over the course of the story um that's john's goal too and i say john and manhattan as separate people because it really um they make a distinction in this story that everyone kind of on the outside knows him as dr manhattan but the people who know him call him john and he has this weird reaction to when people call him John because he's almost not um, not used to people being so personal with him. And so when characters like Adrian Veidt call him John, he's like he's almost disgusted. Uh, when other characters, you know, like Carver Coleman, who we will absolutely talk about in just a minute, uh, call him John, there's this sense of. Um, aloofness and the sense of uh curiosity but john as we come to find out comes to the dc universe after the conclusion of uh watchmen trying to find himself and trying to find where he fits he says at the end of watchmen and, I, and it has been co-opted by memes and everything else over the past you know 20 30 40 years that you know i he was tired of this universe it's people and so he decided to go and find a new one and so he goes to the dc universe and unbeknownst to him he arrives in a place of people who are more like him um both literal and figurative gods and he upon coming to the dc universe stumbles upon a young homeless man named carver coleman who just lost his job at Werner bros give you give you two guesses as to what Werner bros is parroting um who's a young actor who moved out from the midwest and you know really is kind of at rock bottom he's really he's having a hard time he's living on the streets and he is the first person that john encounters in the dc universe and so they go to a diner uh john is basically having trouble accessing his omnipotent vision the way that he's able to see into the past the future and the present all at the same time and he is having a hard time trying like accessing these powers so he realizes that he needs a focal point he needs 
essentially a lightning rod and he uses Carver Coleman to be that lightning rod and as we come to see his influence and him conversing with Carver Coleman uh, allows him to not just uh, get a handle on his powers in this universe but also gives him his one and only friend and for most of the story he's a pretty terrible friend as we come to find out he meets with Carver on one day every single year and each year he kind of predicts what's going to happen in Carver's life. Carver goes out, he does his thing, and he comes back the next year. Um, it's really this first conversation that John has with him, basically telling him that, you know, six months from now you're going to get the role of a lifetime and it's going to change your life and you're going to be in a completely different situation. And this gives uh, Carver, who is really at the end of his rope, hope for the first time in God knows how long. Um, and as the story goes on and as Carver's years begin to go on, um, he starts, him and John have this weird friendship where they're essentially kind of using each other. And it's really not until he tells Carver, like, hey, you're not going to be here in a year, uh, that it kind of all comes crashing down on him. Uh, Carver Coleman is also notable in the story for being the main star of the story within a story, in true Watchmen fashion, of the Nathaniel Dusk films. These are uh, pulp detective noir films that uh, I guess played in the DC universe in the uh, 30s and f in the 40s and 50s. And what I find fascinating is, in the same way that um, Marvel kind of took Patsy Walker and turned her into um, Hellcat, basically saying that, oh, you know, all those romance comics that Patsy was part of, you know, in the 20th century were really just, you know, a TV show that she was on, and this is the real Patsy. Um, just making those original stories still canon, but also making them fiction in Patsy's world. It was just fantastic. But what they did here is they recycled Nathaniel Dusk, who was a pulp hero in dc comics very early on in their publication history doing detective noir stuff and folding him back into dc continuity as the role that uh, carver coleman plays in the nathaniel dusk pictures and first of all i love this it's just it's so good um i'm a huge sucker for detective noir and this i mean this story really is uh, a noir story it's got all of the um all the trappings and trimmings of a detective noir story a narrator who is unreliable someone who um is trying to bring the narrator down uh we've got a kind of tragic uh reveal near the end of the story and we've also got the main character essentially passing away by the end of the story so it's got all of the trappings of a uh of a detective noir story but what this story really represents is um is a window into carver coleman as a character and carver is a closeted homosexual man who is ultimately blackmailed by his own mother who is a terrible person and then beaten to death uh, after the uh, wrap of his final film, which was The Adjournment. And Carver Coleman's story is so sad. It really is. Um, and also the fact that John was his only friend, and basically for an entire year, he has been waiting for something to kill him, is terrible. 
It's awful. And John is completely unable to really um, provide him any comfort or any relief, which is sad. Uh, as the story goes along, we get more glimpses into Carver's life. We get more glimpses into his interactions with John. And as um, the years go by, John becomes just as detached in this universe as he was in the old one. And it's at this point in the story where John essentially discovers what's called the metaverse. Now, the metaverse is different from the multiverse. I'm going to try to explain it. However, um, the comic does a much better job of explaining it than I ever could. But what we come to find out is that the DC universe that we know, what we know as Earth-1, Earth-0, Earth-Prime, whatever you want to call it, the mainline DC universe is not... Um, as much part of the multiverse is in that it essentially spawns the multiverse. Every single time a big change happens, a crisis, a reboot, the uh, world that it leaves behind becomes its own universe. And this mainline DC universe changes with the times. And every single time that the uh, that a crisis happens every single time that you know some big event that shakes up the status quo of the story the metaverse creates a essentially it creates a copy of what was to preserve every single age that ever has been and as john you know reaches in and he starts to try try to figure out why the metaverse is this way why it reacts differently than the multiverse does, why the met the metaverse um, constantly reshapes itself. He comes to find out that uh, the metaverse is shaped around Superman and that every single change in the metaverse always can be traced back to Superman. And so John grows curious. He decides that he wants to see just how much he can change the metaverse because he sees the changes happening constantly in the metaverse itself. And so he decides, I'm going to try something. So he goes back further than Superman appearing uh, for the first time in April 18th, 1938. He goes back to a moment that not a lot of people know about, which is the train crash of Alan Scott. Alan Scott, um, basically, you know, he's on a train. It goes off of a goes off a cliff essentially and in his panic as the train is falling he reaches out and he wraps his hand around a green lantern and the lantern saves his life and he decides to become the superhero green lantern utilizing the power within this mysterious green lantern uh, to become a superhero so what john does ever so slightly he shows up in the midst of this crash when alan scott is reaching for this lantern and he moves it six inches out of uh alan's reach and so he is unable to grab the lantern and he dies and from here just ripple effects everywhere this is the moment this is the key that changes literally everything because as we know from flashpoint um time ripples out one change can affect both the past and the future of that timeline. We saw this in Flashpoint when Barry saved his mom, and that affected not just the future, but also the past, where because him saving his mom um, 
for some reason superman landed in metropolis instead of kansas killing you know millions of people um all of these other changes that happened in uh in flashpoint happened because of this ripple effect and that's what happens in doomsday clock manhattan moves the lantern green lantern never becomes a superhero the justice society never becomes a team you know thousands of years into the future the legion of superheroes never forms and so dr manhattan has essentially changed the metaverse and he has become a part of that metaverse and so as we kind of figure out and we are given this um backstory of like this is what happened this is why manhattan did it and ultimately and i think maybe it's probably unintentional but i love the idea that um it kind of parallels the story uh whatever happened in the man of tomorrow where the ultimate villain causes the story to happen because he's bored uh for those of you who don't or who haven't read whatever happened to the man of tomorrow first of all go read it it's amazing second of all the main villain of that story is revealed to be uh mixes Pitalik. And he reveals that the events of the story are put into motion because he was bored and he wanted a change. And this is really what is mirrored in this story where Dr. Manhattan, just out of curiosity and out of boredom, wanted to change something. So he caused all of this mess. And as we come to find out, those, uh, those, that influence and those... Uh, tamperings with the metaverse affect Superman more than anybody. Uh, Superman is the character who spawns the DC Universe. He is the birth of the DC Universe in every single iteration, regardless of whether he's the first superhero or not. Uh, We've seen in different continuities he's not the first superhero. We've seen in the upcoming 5G in this first generation that Wonder Woman is going to be the first superhero. Um... But for some reason, the metaverse rallies itself around Superman. Uh, Dr. Manhattan describes it as there's a dying planet, um, a kindly couple, in the same way, and in just parallels of All-Star Superman, dying planet, kindly couple, Superman. And that really is at the heart of every single DC universe that follows, and every single... Uh, multiverse that is spawned out of the metaverse it is um all boiled down to this one simple truth and that is that superman is at the heart of everything and that if anything the dc universe forms itself around the hope that he brings from this dying planet to this kindly couple and what the story does more than anything is uh provide one of the most well plotted and um intricate love letters to superman that i've ever read uh jeff johns has made it very clear that he loves superman as a character uh he wrote one of the best superman origin stories ever uh that's superman's secret origin if you haven't uh read it yet go to your local comic book shop um go on the dc universe streaming service and app uh they're not a sponsor but they could totally be a sponsor and check it out because it is a fantastic story and it also features gary frank on pencils and gary frank always draws superman to look like christopher reeve and i love that um but this really is putting superman at the center of the metaverse at the center of the multiverse 
And as someone who has been a diehard Superman fan like I have been for all of my life, I just, I love that. And I love that it affects, that Superman's birth affects everything. Um, as the story goes along and as we, you know, wind down to the ending, uh, Manhattan looks into the future. You know, Superman shifts. Every single crisis that happens, Superman shifts again. And with him, the metaverse shifts around him. You know, he makes his debut on April 18th, 1938. Oh, no, wait. He makes his debut in you know, the mid-50s. Oh, wait, no. He makes his debut in the mid-80s. Like, all of this stuff retroactively makes everything matter and makes every continuity mean something. One of my favorite and one of uh, Grant Morrison's biggest contributions is this theory that everything matters, that everything happened. It might not be in the way that you remember it. It might not be exactly in the way that it was... Um, chronicled in comic books but every single thing happened one way or another and with this theory of the metaverse with this concept of the metaverse and the fact that even it says and i love this i'm looking through the last issue right now uh, earth 1985 is the post-crisis earth and it says it has been untouched to this day somewhere out there in the multiverse there's an earth that we haven't touched on which is the post-crisis earth that we've just never seen um this retroactively also uh makes convergence matter a little bit it's not a good story but it makes it matter a little bit more um but it really is just this idea that superman is at the heart of everything and that's really what it comes down down to at the end of this story it comes down to the final confrontation in issue 12 between Superman and Dr. Manhattan. Dr. Manhattan has manipulated events. Superman has tried his best to be the shining beacon for the DC Universe and has failed. Uh, different uh, metahuman teams and metahuman uh, squads from other countries are coming to Washington, D.C. to destroy him and to take the White House. And amidst all of this chaos, John appears. And throughout the story, he has been saying that he has this vision of Superman coming at him, fire in his eyes, and a fist being thrown at him, and then nothing. He can't see anything past it. And he has this conversation with Superman, and Superman is... This is one of the greatest superhero meetings I've ever read. Period. Bar none, full stop, that's it watching a man of action meet a man of inaction and seeing what happens superman is pleading with him he's like do something like people are dying there are people in this city you know i need help i can't do this by myself and so he is pleading with dr manhattan and manhattan basically tells him like i'm a man of inaction but my action, my one single action caused all of this. My one single action, you know, caused your parents to be killed. My one single action caused your entire life to be changed. What are you going to do? And Superman charges at him. He extends his fist and he punches a metahuman who was going to attack Dr. Manhattan from behind. Even at the moment that Superman should be at his weakest, beaten down, 
Um, hope is lost. He's just been told that this man caused the death of his parents, the only two people who in the world he felt safe with before Lois. He still saves him. He still spares him. And even Dr. Manhattan is surprised by this. We don't see Dr. Manhattan uh, taken off guard a whole lot. And so this uh, confrontation, this moment where Superman saves him, Superman says, I don't know who you are. I've never met you before. But if you have the power to do everything that you say you do, then you should do something. He says, you know, you have this vision of me, which he explains. He says, you know, you see this in black and white. Either I destroy you or you destroy me. Maybe there's a third option. Maybe there's a third option where you and I do something to make things better. And he's inspired. There is this amazing moment where Dr. Manhattan, who hasn't felt things in years, Dr. Manhattan, who is just, I guess, bemused and curious by everything, but really never um, uh, drawn into anything on an emotional standpoint and hasn't been for decades at this point, is inspired by Superman. And if nothing else tells you the clear and present point of Superman that he could cause someone who lost faith in humanity to be inspired and refined his humanity tells you that Superman isn't the most important superhero to have ever been created I don't know what to tell you um, each issue has this quote uh, at the end of it, very in line with uh, with Watchmen in that case. And the final issue has this quote at the very end. Um, I tear up at the end of this issue every single time I read it. It doesn't matter how many times I've read it before. But the quote is from uh, Rabindranath Tagore. I probably said that wrong, and I apologize. But the quote says, Every child comes with the message that God is not yet discouraged of man. Every child comes with the message that God is not yet discouraged of man. Every new light lets us know that God isn't done with us yet. And the fact that Superman was able to inspire a God to do something is incredible. No matter how you slice it, it really is. Um, Dr. Manhattan then kind of collapses the DC universe as we know it restarts it again and moves the lantern back so that Alan Scott is able to reach the lantern he becomes Green Lantern, Justice Society appears, um, the Legion of Superheroes thousands of years from now shows up um, and everything is restored again everything's back to how it was uh, the metaverse continues on uh, Dr. Manhattan looks into the future where other, you know, crises, crises will happen as they inevitably do. Uh, the metaverse will shift again and again and again as years go by, as decades go by, as centuries and millennia go by. Superman will be at the center of this metaverse and everything will be shaped around him. And in that way, everything's going to be okay because Superman still fights for truth and for justice. Superman still fights for the idea that, yeah, there's wrong in the world, but maybe you should do right. 
And so the ending of this book, we come to find out that um, Marionette and Mime's missing child was actually taken by Dr. Manhattan. And in the twilight of his life, he raises this baby into a child as he goes back to the Watchmen universe and completely saves the world, revitalizes the world, um, saves it from nuclear Armageddon, is able to... um, destroy every single bit of nuclear weaponry on earth and at the end of his life when the last of his power is starting to deplete he sends this child to a kindly couple this kindly couple being the hollises that being um uh, sorry uh it's still it, it still chokes me up um that being the former silk specter and night owl who, after the events of Watchmen, retired, got new identities, and had a child of their own. And so this child shows up on the doorstep of this couple, along with their daughter. And when they ask him what his name is, he says, John calls me Clark. So the lesson that John takes from Superman, from the DC Universe, from the metaverse as a whole, is that sending Clark to a kindly couple to be raised and to eventually as we see because he has the um the manhattan symbol on his forehead he's going to have uh john's powers that sending someone with the values of superman will inevitably make that world better and i mean what more could you ask for (laughs) um Needless to say, I love this book. It's incredible. Uh, my favorite issues, personally, if you uh, put a gun up to my head and ask me my top three issues, uh, my favorite issues, issue number six, which is the uh, origin of Marionette and Mime, showing them meeting as children. They're super dark, absolutely pitch-perfect Watchmen origins. Uh, issue 10, where it's revealed that Dr. Manhattan messed with the timeline. It's the reveal of the metaverse. Um, basically, his whole thing with Carver Coleman, which I forgot to mention in the ending. He goes back to the moment that he told Carver Coleman, I'm not going to, or you're not going to be here in a year. He tells him, I misspoke. I'm not going to be here in a year. But I need you to know that you shouldn't be afraid of who you are. Uh, I think the. Let me find this real quick. Um, the. I'm vamping. But basically, he tells uh, Carver, who, as we established, is a um, is a closeted gay man. Um, he basically tells him, you know, don't be afraid of what you feel. And so in, he shifts the entire trajectory of Carver Coleman's life. Instead of dying the next year by being black, you know, during his blackmailing of his mother, um, he comes out as gay. He is shunned from the Hollywood community, but it later on comes back um, and is able to win an Academy Award for a supporting role on his return to Hollywood. He's also instrumental in getting homosexuality completely uh, stricken off the list of uh, mental disorders. He becomes an activist for LGBT rights, and he ends up living a long fulfilled life with his husband and i love that i think it's fantastic you know john really did his best to make sure that his friend who he hadn't been and he admits he hadn't been a very good friend up to that point um 
he is able to save his life and i love that um so yeah so favorite issues uh 6 10 and 12 uh 6 the origin of marionette and mime 10 the reveal of the metaverse and dr manhattan's meddling in it and 12 the conclusion and my conclusion on this book um taking away the delays taking away the obvious editorial changes that were made taking away the fact that this has been silently shifted into dc black label which is basically the line where dc doesn't know what to do with these books so they're 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 black label um this story as it is I think is just as worthy a sequel and a successor to the original Watchmen as the HBO series was. They're very different stories, but I think they are equally great as sequels to this story. Um, I think it's a wonderful comic just in general. It is an instant classic. It's a book that we're going to be talking about for a very long time. Whether we talk about it positively or negatively, this is a book that's going to stick with you just like it stuck with me and for me it's it's an easy five out of five it is one of the greatest comics that i've ever read and it is a comic that i love from with all my heart um comics have always been a huge deal in my life uh they were the reason that i started this podcast in the first place and um i think it's poetic that on the uh, two-year anniversary of this podcast, we we're talking about something that I love and something that shows off not just a love for Superman, but a love for comics. It is now time for the weekly review. This is the segment of our show where I talk about something and I review it weekly. And this marks the return of our wildcard weekly reviews. This is basically uh, the period where we are kind of in a holding pattern until the next big uh, focus on the weekly review series, which will be season two of Harley Quinn on the D DC Universe streaming service and app. Um, but in the meantime, we're going to be reviewing something different every single week in the lead up to, I believe, April 3rd is when the first episode of Season 2 drops. So we will be releasing Wildcard Weekly reviews on something different every single week until then. And this week, I'm really excited to review Castlevania Season 3. Um, it dropped with not as big fanfare as I think a lot of people expected um, this past week, and I binged it, and it was good. So let's talk about it. Um, basically, the series itself is kind of divided into three stories. Uh, the first story is of Belnades and Belmont. The second story is focused on Alucard, and the third story is focused on the greater uh, vampire civilization and... Um, 
all of the stuff that goes into that. Uh, this series does have 10 episodes, which kind of falls in line with how it's been kind of growing each season. The first episode, believe it or not, or the first season, um, only had four episodes, and it seems like a fever dream now, with there only being four episodes and them doing so much within those episodes. Um, the second season was eight episodes, and this season comes in at a whopping ten episodes, which makes the season... Um, I would honestly say there's good and bad things about it. Uh, there's more time to tell these stories, so you get some more time with the characters. You don't have to kind of push through all the character beats and the relationships, which was a criticism of uh, the first and second seasons, that we just kind of had to go, 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 get to the important stuff. However, um, this season did have some filler in it, mostly when it came to uh, the vampire stories with uh, Hector and... Um, Carmilla and our girl Lenore, which we will talk about. Um, the season kind of overall, I think, both benefited and also um, was negatively impacted by the expanded length. So either way you slice it, it's definitely different and there's definitely more time for everything. I'm going to kind of talk about each story on its own. First, B&B, Belnadas and Belmont. Um, Sci-Fi and Trevor, man. They're great. They're they're still the heart and soul of this series. Um, this is my favorite uh, plot line throughout this season out of all three. And it's basically them monster hunting. They're going through the lands, basically just hunting down monsters and saving villages. Uh, it's the most fun to watch, really just because of the dynamic between Sypha and Trevor. Their chemistry is amazing. They're, uh, they're bantered together. They've kind of settled into a still i think on the honeymoon phase relationship where saifa is very gung-ho about everything and trevor is just exhausted by everything so i really dig that they are fantastic get together and their plot line actually gets really really dark at the very end to the point that there was a point in the final episode where i had to pause it because i was just like holy shit that's dark um it's it's uh it's great it's great great storytelling Alucard um, is probably the most focused, pretty much just because they are, for his entire bit of the season, he is in one location, just at the castle, and he is encountered by these two, um, I want to say they're Japanese, I don't know if it's ever explicitly stated, but I'm going to say they're Japanese, uh, these two Japanese vampire hunters who are asking for his help to help train them so that they can kill the uh, head vampire who has, who is basically ruling their land. And Alucard kind of takes on, like, at the beginning, he's really sad because he's just this, you know, lonely loser who's just, like, talking to himself all the time and just wants friends. And then these two people come to, into his life who he kind of takes under his wing as his students. They um, grow from, like, being like kind of treated like his kids to like his brother and sister and he's training them to some sexy time with these two individuals and at the end it's really tragic because these two characters you know they're humans and in this if anything if any theme carries across all three seasons it's that um yeah vampires eat people but humans suck like humans are awful and I don't want to give too much away. I think it's definitely worth watching, but it is an absolutely great tragic setup for season four, which um, really feeds into this idea that Alucard has the potential to turn 
has every single tool at his disposal to turn into his father. Um, and then we have the uh, vampire segments that were basically, you know, them amassing their armies. And this really is where the season kind of falls apart for me. It feels like filler. Um, it's really just kind of in a holding pattern, like, oh, we're amassing our resources to get ready to go to war and all this stuff. And it felt very um, Game of Thrones at its less than, like, exciting times. Um, and I think that's a fair uh, comparison between the two, Game of Thrones and Castlevania, because this really, in this season, not a lot of time passes. And... Um, you really kind of go through these characters in every step of the way, which I like. But in that same point, like there are certain plot lines, just like in even the best seasons of Game of Thrones, where things are kind of dragging. And unfortunately, that's where this was. However, they do introduce a character here named Lenore, who is one of my new favorite characters. She's in my top five for sure. She's fantastic. She is so interesting. Uh, she is in the Vampire Council known as the peacemaker and as she says in a monologue she basically says you know that makes people think i'm soft but i'm not and she like reveals over the course of the season that she is one bad motherfucker like she is awesome um and i'm really excited to see where she goes when she starts to meet more of the cast as the series goes along um overall i would say i liked this season just slightly better than season two um, I would have to go back and rewatch season two just to see and compare, but I would say, um, this season really kind of did feel lost and rudderless that like, oh, you know, the first, you know, Dracula's dead, the focus of our first two seasons. So what do we do now? But I did like what they did with, a. Uh, with uh siphon trevor i really like the introduction of lenore and i think even though it was the slowest and most laser focused i really like the setup for alucard for season four um and really overall this season really was a lot of setup for season four um really and i think maybe this is the reason i liked it so much um really the only story that was really self-contained and didn't really like oh, here's some setup for the next season was the Sypha and Trevor plotline, and maybe that's why I liked it so much because everything else felt like, okay, we're getting everybody ready. You know, this is fine, but season four is going to be great. Uh, no season four has been announced, but you you have to assume that people are going to watch it and that they're going to make it. Um, I think I heard somewhere that they have five or six seasons planned, um, but no word on whether, you know, those seasons are greenlit or what's going on with them, but in the way that if this is you know the end of kind of the first act to get us ready for act two um i think it worked i think it worked overall and i'm excited to see what goes on with season four are they going to keep the uh the episode length that we have right now are they going to make it more are they going to make it less i still think uh the first season is so solid at four episodes that it accomplishes so much with the runtime that it really uh, still is the best out of the three seasons. But I'm excited. I'm looking forward to seeing what they do with this. And overall, Castlevania is still, still going strong. So um, that's going to do it for this week uh, for the weekly review. Uh, tune in next week for our next wild card. What will we review? I have no idea. We'll see. But <laughs> for now, let's hop on over to this week's Comics Countdown. Ooh. 
Welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I talk about the comics that I think you should be picking up this week. Whether it's at your local comic book shop, on Comixology, or however you get your comics, these are the ones I think you should definitely take a look at. We'll be talking about each book's title and creative team, as well as a brief synopsis of each book. And of course, every synopsis will be accompanied by my synopsis voices. If you have a synopsis voice you'd like me to try out for this segment, feel free to request that at Pod on Twitter or or Instagram, or through email, because I'm an old man, I still read emails, to geeksplained at gmail.com. Before we get into the books for this week, we got to take a look back at last week with the Geeksplained Pick of the Week of last week. And I think um, probably might be a surprise for uh, most people, uh, the Pick of the Week of the last week was not Strange Adventures number one. I thought it was definitely going to be, but after reading this comic, it was just so clear to me that this was going to be the Pick of the Week, and that was Daredevil number 18. I freaking loved this comic. Marco Cicchetto is back on uh, art duties for this Uh George Fornes, I will miss you, but Marco Cicchetto started off the story, so it only makes sense that he comes back in at its climax. Really love the art here, really love the story that they're telling of uh, Daredevil kind of reluctantly stepping back, or, excuse me, Matt Murdock's reluctantly stepping back into the Daredevil role. Chills, goosebumps by the end of this issue. Um, and also how Hell's Kitchen is kind of coming together under the banner of Daredevil. It's just, it's so good. If you're not reading this comic, you should be reading this comic. It is fantastic. But that's last week. Let's talk about this week. This week, I'm going to be honest, guys, it's uh, it's slim pickings. We only got four books this week, and they're all from Marvel. <laughs> um, DC, you know, they had their big weeks uh, last week and the week before, and then they just kind of like, ah, oh, we're going to chill. We're going to chill for this week. So um, I'm hoping next week is going to pick back up. But let's go ahead and dive into the book, starting off with Star Wars, The Rise of Kylo Ren, number four of four, written by Charles Sewell with art by Will Sliney. Um, this book's been good. It's been telling a really nice, solid story of uh, Ben Solo's kind of evolution into Kylo Ren. I've been enjoying it. Pretty simple. So let's dive into the synopsis here. The rise of Kylo Ren concludes as Ben Solo, once the Jedi's greatest hope, is swallowed by the dark side. It is his destiny, and if there was ever another path, Snoke and the Knights of Ren made certain he would not see it. From Ben to Ren, and now he is lost. So yeah, this is basically his ascent into that role, and... Um, yeah, that's pretty much what you got to say about it. Next up, we have X-Men number eight, written by Jonathan Hickman, with art by R.B. Silva and Lanil Francis Yu. Um, this book's been really good. Last issue knocked my socks off. Uh, the Crucible issue was fantastic, and I'm really excited to see how they build off that. So let's jump into the synopsis here. The new mutants are back from space, and they've brought intergalactic trouble with them. The Brood, the Shia, the Starjammers, the Imperial God. So, it's X-Men fighting space people. You know, some of their best stories have been with that premise, so I'm looking forward to this. Next up, we have Thor number four, written by Donny Cates with art by Nick Klein. This book's been so good so far. I've been loving it. Um, I was really uh, 
kind of taken aback by the first issue. I don't think I loved that, but with each issue, it's just been getting better and better, and I'm really, really, really enjoying it. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Thor's greatest enemy and the universe's only savior revealed. The Black Winter is coming, the end of the entire vast universe, and only one entity can stop it. The only one who has survived it before, Galactus the World Eater, has come to Midgard in search of a herald for the end of everything. So, pretty basic stuff. Uh, last issue was a great little um, battle between Thor and Beta Ray Bill. I'm assuming that they are going to build off of it for this, and I am looking forward to it. But the big book of the week for me, the book that I'm really excited about to pick up the most, is Hawkeye Freefall number four. Um, last issue left off with Daredevil showing up and threatening to expose uh, Clint's secret that he is Ronin, and I am so freaking excited to pick this up. Um, if I didn't say before, it's written by Matthew Rosenberg with art by Otto Schmidt. Let's dive into the synopsis. Daredevil tips Hawkeye off to the formation of a new task force. They have one mission, to stop the dangerous new Ronin before he tears the city apart. Clint joins up, but he can't help but notice that Ronin gets results. Whose side is he really on? And as Hawkeye's own hunt for the hood intensifies, he's about to find himself in the sights of one of his most dangerous foes of all time. What I love about this, about the synopses of each of these issues of Hawkeye Freefall, have been they do not spoil the reveal from issue two. I just, it's a little thing, but I love it. Um, and that does it. Like I said, slim pickings this week, uh, so only four bucks to recap. We've got Star Wars, Rise of Kylo Ren, number four of four, X-Men, number eight, Thor, number four, and Hawkeye Freefall, number four. Lots of fours this week. Um, so yeah, uh, like I said, hoping for a bigger week next week, hoping for DC to kind of bounce back from the slump of this week, and uh, hoping to see them, you know, come back with a vengeance in March. Um, but overall, I think four really strong books, uh, Hawkeye Freefall is definitely the MVP of the week, and I can't wait to see how Matthew Rosenberg makes Hawkeye's life even worse. And that is going to do it for this week's episode. Thank you very much for listening, um, and thanks for joining us on our two-year anniversary. I kind of gave away a little bit of the behind-the-curtain stuff at the beginning of uh, the intro, where I didn't know where this podcast was going to go when I started it two years ago. I didn't know if it was going to even reach 10 episodes. And now we're two years on, and we're looking at episode 100 next week. Um, I'm, I'm just I'm so excited. I am so excited and grateful and thankful for all of you listeners joining me and listening to me rant and rave about stuff that um, I love and I'm passionate about. So once again, thanks for joining me every week. I'm really looking forward to uh, dropping this episode, seeing what everyone thinks about Doomsday Clock and 
I'm also really looking forward to next week's episode. And I can officially reveal that uh, next week's episode will be a really big one. I'm really excited about it. It's our 100th episode. We're officially hitting triple digits, folks. And to commemorate that, uh, we're going to be doing an episode that I've been wanting to do for a very long time, something that I've had in my heart for even before this podcast. And that is our episode of Pitch It! for Superman the movie. I am going to be pitching my version of what I would want to see for a Superman movie. I'm very nervous about this um, because I've had this story in my mind for years and I, I'm i nervous but excited to share it with you all. So look forward to that uh, next week. Same geek time. No, oh, I guess different geek time because it'll be coming out on our normal release schedule of uh, Wednesdays and this came out on Tuesday. But um, same Geek Channel, I once again, I can't thank you enough for joining us, you know, listening to me rant and rave every single week. Um, if you liked what you heard, feel free to give us a rating and review, especially on iTunes. Really helps me out, really helps out the podcast uh, and helps us get into the orbit of listeners just like you. And feel free to give us a subscribe as well. Follow us on all the social medias uh, at Pod, and I will see you right back here next week for episode 100, our pitch it for a Superman film, and I can't wait to share it with you. But for now, for Geeksplain, this is Eric Gazana. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for two years, and we will see you next time.